Welcome to Flip the Script, the show where we talk about all your favorite adapted films and where they got their start. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you that the following episode will spoil important plot points from the movie and its original source. I'm your host, Kim Labick, and I hope you enjoy the show. So, Anna, this is what, our third episode recording together? I think. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think this is third. Third time we've been together doing an episode. Once again, this is the, I said infamous last time. I have to say another really good adjective about you. Amazing, talented, educational, educational, intelligent. Ugh, every, every like positive adjective you could think of, that's, that's Anna. That is way too kind, but thank you. Do you, you remember the movie A Knight's Tale with Paul Bettany? And I was just thinking about, I was like, okay, how do I turn my intros into that like when paul bettany's character like introduces what's his face and he's Heath like Ledger, right yeah he goes through yeah. all of these like beautiful backstories he's like i once saw him spend a year in silence just to better <laughs> understand the, the sound of a word or something oh god that's awesome Is that anyways your description for me I, that should be my twitter bio yeah man next time i'm gonna write one of those for you so it'll be a much more grand entrance great uh so today we are talking about the thing and there's kind of like a lot of different versions of it like a prequel like a possible sequel stuff we're just gonna be talking about all of it there's no like one main oh i think there's a main i have a main main focus here i i'm all in on the john carpenter version but we'll get to that okay we'll consider that like the big one so yeah basically all the ones that exist all the versions that exist of the story there was the original short story by john w campbell jr uh called who goes there and you know it's the it's the classic the thing story a group of scientists discover a space alien and start distrusting everybody because it turns into everybody and then the thing from outer space came out in 1972 oh i'm sorry god i got the i got the numbers wrong 1951 was the thing from outer space 1972 was horror express 1982 the classic john carpenter kurt russell the thing and then last thing that we've had so far is the 2011 prequel, also called The Thing. And that's the one that I just watched. It's confusing that it's a prequel to me. Yeah, especially because it has, like, the same name. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> and as far as I know, it's, like, kind of still the same concept? Like, the same storyline? I have seen other adaptations, but I've not seen that one. So you'll have to speak on that one for us. But Yeah, well, so this will be interesting because I've only now seen the 2011 movie. I haven't seen anything else but you've seen pretty much everything else so we're gonna kind of just be like <laughs> bouncing I've back seen and forth the thing from outer space the 50s one is that what it's called the thing from outer space yeah mm-hmm. thing from something um and then i've seen the the thing the original the thing from the 80s movie so nice nice okay <laughs> this whole thing is gonna be like oh wait did that happen in the other version <laughs> did this literally happen? yes <laughs> i love it i love it too yeah i literally okay so let's start off first you know, we always try and start off with like a favorite quote or a moment. What do you have from your plethora of thing knowledge? Well, I think, I mean, this is kind of a spoiler. I feel like these are all spoiler podcasts, right? Like, whatever. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Spoiler. Um, the part in the 80s one, I'm just going to call it the John Carpenter version mm-hmm. moving forward. The John Carpenter version, um, when there's like the decapitated head that becomes a monster and 
they have to kill that. It's like really great effects, like really fun, cheesy, crappy effects that are also amazing at the same time. And I just love it. It's actually like very, and I want to talk about that. The effects are known to be like really revolutionary when it comes to like prosthetics and makeup and stuff for film. And I think that part's just a really great example. So I love that part. Again, only having seen like the recent prequel, I think the effects were really good in that for like 2011 and watching it now in 2020. It was like really good, but you can see like a little bit of like VFX kind of glare to it, but it's still really good and holds up for these past like 10 years or so. Yeah, I would say the 80s one does not hold up at all, but it's like that fabulous, nostalgic, rubbery looking prosthetics gore that I just adore from like old 80s movies. You know, mm-hmm. that's it's totally what it is, but I, it's just fabulous at the same time. They don't make them like they used to. <laughs> What's your favorite moment? I Oh my god, okay, so I was really trying to find like a favorite specific moment, and as I was watching this movie, my first thought, there's this moment where the main character girl um, like shuts down everybody else. Like it's very early on, and they're all really smart about how they like take care of this shit, because they're like ready to just burn it all to the ground. And there's one moment where they're like kind of talking amongst themselves, and then she just talks over everyone, and she's like, listen, here's what we're gonna do, blah, 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 let's go. And at first I was like, yes, I love that moment. She's fucking taking charge. She's smart. She's going to like set them on the right path. And then basically the whole movie, like she just keeps doing that a lot. Like she has these really great moments where she just shuts everyone down and she's like, this is what we're doing. Shut up and stop arguing. So honestly, it's not really a moment or a quote, but I just think like her character is my favorite in so many ways because she's Very much like yourself, Anna. She's very, like, smart. She's a leader. She's, like, ready to go. You mean she's bossy. She's she's a a (laughs) boss-ass bitch. (laughs) But, yeah, she's really good. Did you like the movie? Did you like the prequel? Oh, my God, yes. Because I think it bombed at the box office, right? I think it did really poorly and didn't get a lot of attention. Um, Yeah, I really liked it. And, again, I haven't seen anything else besides that, so... You know, I don't have any, like, expectations going into it. I was just like, oh, this is going to be a sci-fi horror film. But I really liked it. That's a theme with the thing, though, because the 80s one, the John Carpenter version, also bombed, like, really bad. Yes. And you know what? I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I already have a fun fact for you on that note. Yeah, so the Kurt Russell film, like, bombed at the box office. Part of the reason that it did bomb was because it came out two weeks after a very successful Steven Spielberg film. My question for you is, can you guess which Spielberg film came out two weeks before The Thing? Well, so it was 82, I think. Mm -hmm. And since this movie's about aliens, I'm guessing that this movie was also about aliens. So I think it's E.T., right? right? Yep, you're right. Cha-ching! I never get I don't think that's the first trivia question I've gotten correct. So I feel good about that one. I thought that was going to trip you up, too, because, like, at least in my mind, I can't form, like, the timeline of when Spielberg movies came out. So I would have been like, I don't know. No, but it makes sense because I feel like everyone wanted the happy alien movie and not the gory, violent alien movie. So nobody wanted to see the thing. Mm-hmm. And I believe mm-hmm. I've heard before that John Carpenter was, like, totally devastated that this movie did poorly. And I think he's called it his favorite of his films Aww. of all of his movies. I mean, and this guy's made, he made freaking Halloween, for God's sake. And I think he said The Thing was his favorite and was very sad that this didn't do well. But, I mean, it's gotten a huge cult following since. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say it's a fairly well-known horror movie, but not, like, 
super, like it's not in the echelon of like Friday the 13th or Halloween or, you know, any of the huge tentpole horror movies, but I feel like the thing is pretty well known. I would say there's like a really special benefit to a film having a cult following over having like a successful box office weekend because, you know, then you get the people who are going to like buy the DVD and like watch it that way and like have it in their possession, in their hearts, whereas like box office numbers are more or less like driven by like the hype i think yeah yeah and i agree i'm i mean i love cult movies that's my guilty pleasure i even if it's like a crappy like the room even if it's like a crappy movie if it's a cult movie i still love it so much and i love that people love them so much and i think you're totally right because yeah like obviously there's huge followings around star wars and huge temple movies like that but for the most part i i think that blockbusters can often be more hollow and they don't capture people's hearts in the same way that movies that get more of a cult following do a great example of that would be like avatar like avatar you know is very clearly one of the like biggest box office grossing films of all time but it there's like no cult following as far as i know i literally don't care about avatar yeah maybe like two people are like i love avatar and the rest of us are just like i don't remember it the five sequels they've already filmed yeah i will (laughs) like i'm gonna pay to see them and i don't care about any of them but i'm still gonna see them anyway it's all about, you know, what the what the production company wants. Do they want a cult movie? Do they want a box office movie? When do they want their paycheck? They always want the paycheck. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I did want to ask you, though. So mm-hmm. since we've seen different versions, how does your version, the, the newest one, end? Ooh, okay. So I'm going to give like a little bit of a summary, just an overall. Okay. Um. So, you know, there's this team that are in Antarctica, the Norwegian team in Antarctica, they discover the thing. Well, like the spaceship. Um, And then this British guy goes to our leading lady paleontologist and is like, I need your help with a spooky thing. And she's like, what kind of a thing? And he's like, I can't tell you that, but come on, come to the Antarctic. She's like, okay. So she goes. The team basically like looks at it and they're like, oh my God, this is crazy. It's definitely an alien. So they dig it up in this big chunk of ice, bring it back home. They're all drinking and having a good time. It escapes. And of course, shit hits the fan, et cetera, et cetera. It ends. Oh my God. The ending was really good because like the the final scenes are the leading lady and like one of the other guys, I think his name is Carter, are battling it in its spaceship because it like made it back to its spaceship. And they're battling it. They throw. She throws her grenade in the thing's mouth. And so it explodes. And they're like running away. And they like somehow make it outside safely. And they're trying to get back in the car. Because they're like, oh, we got to go catch this other guy who escaped in a car. Because we don't want him to like, you know, get out and like ruin the world. So right before they like go and chase after him, she notices his ear. Because he's had this like small earring the whole time and if anybody knows if anybody's familiar with the thing the thing cannot replicate inorganic material so an earring is a really good sign of like that's still a human but he doesn't have the earring so she notices and she's like oh i'll just take this flamethrower and put it in the back seat and then she comes back and she's like bitch i see that you don't have an earring and she burns his ass alive she goes back into the other car and just like sits there and nice Similar, I would say it's similar to the John Carpenter version. Overall, for the John Carpenter version, it's a bleak-ass movie. Like, it is 
I think that's why I love it so much is that's kind of the tone of the movie. It's very bleak. It's very heavy and it's very tense the whole time. And the ending is no different. It's definitely not as blockbustery sounding, I think, as, as it sounds like the newer one is. Because basically with the John Carpenter version, similar type thing, like they discover that one of them really is the alien and they have to do the same, same shit, like, oh, I gotta kill him because he actually is an alien. The way the ending plays out is they end up having to blow up their entire base in Antarctica. Oh. So they blow the whole thing up and they have nowhere to go. So it's Kurt Russell and then one of the other characters and they just sit down with a bottle of whiskey with the fire raging behind them and that's the end. So it's implied that they die, basically, which I Damn. think is fabulous and I love that ending. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense too because you're like, you know, it, there's no way you would just magically be like, oh, wow, there's a base like two miles down we can safely go to. Like, no, you're in the middle of nowhere. You're pretty much screwed. Right. Damn, that's cool. Right. I like a good blockbuster ending though. Like that sounds like it's a fun ending. There's like a little bit more mm. shimmer and shine and explosion to it, which sounds fun. And I think it did a really good job of, you know, setting up its quote unquote sequel because, you know, a lot of times you'll get that big blockbuster movie that sets up the sequel too obviously, where we get like a last shot on like the suspect and is like, eyes oh, turned red or whatever. I don't know. Like something kind of like lame and obvious like that. But no, this one, like they, they just kind of hang on her face in the last shot and you really get to see how everything like starts to weigh in on her, especially because you already know like that other guy got out. So like that's the problem and that's the sequel setup and you don't have to like beat it over the head. Okay, so I have a question then for you about um, the other ones. Again, I think that like all the characters in the one that I saw were really smart. Like from the get go, they were like, this shit is bad. Burn it. Burn it now. Like don't take any chances. How smart were they in the first one? Like, from the get-go. The John Carpenter one, I so I haven't seen it in probably like a year. So don't totally hold me to it. If I remember correctly, though, they're pretty smart about it. I would equate it to, like, the intelligence level of, like, the crew in Alien. I've never seen Alien. <laughs> okay, I know no one can see my face right now, but I am very upset. The disappointment. <laughs> okay, so we're going to do our next episode about the Alien movies, and you're going to watch all of them. All right. Because um, that would be a fun one, because there's some... Wild, there's a wild ride in the Alien franchise. Anyway, okay, so I would say the cast is, or the crew is pretty intelligent. Um, and then your main character is obviously like the badass, most intelligent one. Like Kurt Russell's totally awesome in it. Totally badass, bearded Kurt Russell. And he's the one who's like the voice of reason mostly okay. within the crew. But it, it, he's not the only one. I think what I like so much about the crew dynamic in the John Carpenter one is it's classic like exactly like what a bunch of dudes would do together in that situation like they're kind of assholes to each other there's a lot of mistrust like that seed of mistrust is a huge part of their dynamic with each other and I don't know if it's like that in the newer one but that's really what makes it so terrifying because they really genuinely none of them trust each other and they don't have a reason to trust each other because they're just trying to figure out you know who's infected who's telling the truth who's not that becomes a huge part of like the third act of the movie but I, I mean, they're all intelligent people, but it, it's human nature that it's a survival instinct, right? And, and you don't want to trust anyone else if you don't have a reason to, if it's about your survival versus theirs. It's interesting that you mentioned that they kind of already had the seed of distrust, because kind of in a similar way in the 2011, the there's like three, three or four American characters, and there's like two American characters who at one point like break off from the people before they come back. They're like in a helicopter, the helicopter smashes 
or like not smashes, crashes like far off. And yeah, I mean, that's like the first time when everybody kind of gets the sense that like, oh, we're fucked and we have to like figure this out now. So there's already a little bit of distrust in that group. But then the two guys who survived in the helicopter crash, they come back and they're American besides our leading lady. So they're the other two. Yeah. And there's like this very clear like they're they like the the Norwegians distrust the Americans, the Americans distrust the Norwegians. And I think that that's definitely inherent in their characters before you get into the sci-fi aspect of it. So, yeah, I think they kind of kept like a similar similar thing there. Yeah. So one thing I did want to point out, this has literally nothing to do any with anything, but I just <laughs> wanted to toss it out there, that the diabetes guy is in the John Carpenter version. The diabetes guy? Oh my God. Wait, he's like an actor actor? Yeah, Wilford Brimley is an actor actor. Oh, dude. I literally just thought he was like infomercial famous. No, I think he got famous from Cocoon. Have you seen Cocoon? Oh my God. Yes. Wait, like Ron Howard's claim to fame. Well, not claim to fame, but like Ron Howard's like most notable film. Was that a Ron Howard movie? Oh yeah, it is a Ron Howard movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think Ron, I think Cocoon's a weird movie and I don't really like it very much. I think it's really weird. But yeah, Wilfred Brimley's in that. Ooh. Actually, on that note, I feel like Cocoon has really good potential for a remake. Like the story it of it is it. fascinating and I think it yes. would be good for a remake. And it would be really interesting too. Well, oh my God, what if they could get Ron Howard to remake his own film? <laughs> Wouldn't that be offensive to his original work? Like, hey, man, I think we need to work on this some more. I mean, to be fair, as a fellow director, I would do it. I would be like, oh, yeah, cringy. Could have done better. But it would be it would be definitely difficult to like go up to a director and be like, can you redo your film? But also it would be worse if you had somebody else do it. That's true. I guess if you want a second second swat at it, that's cool. <laughs> anyway, that was really off topic. I just like to remind people that the diabetes guy is in the thing that's cool that's cool the uh the guy from game of thrones is in this the thing um and what i mean like the the red hair red beard the guy who likes um oh um brienne i've blocked out game of thrones from my brain because i hated the ending so much um what's his name <laughs> fair Crap, what's his name i want to say like toe toe something whatever the guy who liked <laughs> brianna tarth whatever yeah. it doesn't matter game of thrones sucked the ending sucked so i don't care it doesn't matter yeah. i'm still upset about it oh it's so hard because the whole series is so good until the end so like i want to rewatch it but every time i start to rewatch it i just like i know why it's gonna bother? be disappointing and so i drop why off. bother when the last season is absolute trash and they ruined everything i'm I, okay this is not a game of thrones discussion we can do this <laughs> another day our, our game of thrones critique is everything sucks at the end so another thing I did want to talk about, though, because I'm so dang passionate about... So I freaking love John Carpenter. I love him so much. And I loved him before I, like, knew anything about movies. Like, I unintentionally just loved John Carpenter movies, like, as a kid. Mm -hmm. Because I think I just grew up watching a lot of John Carpenter movies. Like, Halloween was one of the first, like, legit horror movies I watched, probably, when I was, like... I don't know. I was probably, like, a tween... When I was first starting, you know, like when you're like 10, 11, you start really watching horror movies. Like you've probably seen a couple, but like you're getting to that age, you really start watching them. Halloween was one of the first ones my dad showed me. And I also grew up watching Escape from New York, which is another Kurt Russell, John Carpenter collab. I don't know if you've seen Escape from New York, but it's mm -mm. the best. Oh my God. <laughs> I need you to watch that movie because I think it, it's like, it's like 
what's that movie called? Kung Fury? Oh, oh it's, my God. I love Kung Fury. It's yes. like kind of Kung Fury-ish. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, it's okay. kind of amazing. Okay. So, but, and then like Big Trouble in Little China, which is problematic now, but I mean, in the eighties, it's, it's fun. It's a fun movie. <laughs> um, so I just grew up watching a lot of John Carpenter movies and I just really love him. And I think he's like a genius and I adore him. And I also love like They Live. Have you seen They Live? Oh, oh my God, Kim. Oh, uh, Anna, here's the thing. I apologize for not knowing a lot about horror movies specifically. It's like my, the big gap in my cinematic knowledge is horror films. And I think I mentioned this in another episode, but like basically, you know, without getting too much into it, I was sheltered in many ways growing up. And unfortunately, one of the ways was that I just was like not really allowed to watch horror films, um, even though I really wanted to because I'm I've been a cinephile my whole life. And I'm like, I just want to watch everything. So, yeah, I missed like a lot of the original horror films, Halloween type films. And I'm just now in my life starting to catch up on those. Well, you're catching up. You're getting there. I love to hear it. You'll get there. Slowly but surely. But I, I honestly think, like, we're talking about cult movies. Like, John Carpenter has cult movie down to a science. Like, Big Trouble in Little China and Escape from New York and They Live are the most culty cult of cult movies. They are cheesy. They are weird. They're niche. They got weird sci-fi elements in them. Oh, so fun. Anyway, but I love John Carpenter, and I just wanted to rant about him for a minute. And he composes a lot of his own music for most of his films, which I also think is awesome. Oh, yeah. Didn't he? For Halloween, especially, right? He did Halloween. Um, I think he did I think he did Escape from New York. I don't want to say that for sure. I think he did almost literally all of his movies except a couple. He did not do The Thing. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know who did The Thing? Uh, like the, the music for it? Correct. My first guess would be John Williams. It was Ennio like Morricone. I think who? I'm saying his wrong. Ennio Morricone, I think I'm saying his name wrong. But he no did. Way. Yeah, Hateful Eight, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah. Absolute legend, right? He did the thing. He passed away recently. He did. He passed away, I think, in summer of this year. Honor him. But his score for this movie is great. I know we don't normally talk about scores on this, but the score and the thing is very good. Um, mm-hmm. But John Carpenter's music, though, is incredible. So check out his music, listeners, if you have not listened to some of his music. He's, like, genuinely very talented. He's influenced a lot of, like, the Stranger Things soundtrack was entirely based on John Carpenter's work. Oh, love it. So good. But yeah, okay, so speaking of scores for a minute, I feel like specifically in this genre of just, like, scary films in general, doing the score for a film of that genre would be, like, a very delicate process, you know, because you have to work around, like, keeping the tension and not like this especially like the silent moments like you still need silent moments but if you have a like let's say you have like like a tension building moment with silence but you still want music to trickle in there like i have a feeling it would be very difficult to be able to work around like okay what are we willing to put in here that doesn't add too much to it but still kind of keeps you on your toes and that's why i think like okay so going back to john carpenter's halloween like that score that like very simple piano score and then like talk about jaws for a minute too that like two no score classic totally those i think are really good examples of like they're simple but like psycho the similar similar type of thing yeah they're like simplistic but yet scary so you have just enough to like keep you on edge and help you stay on edge but without like you know without this like grandiose orchestra going Right. Yeah. And John Carpenter pioneered the use of synthesizers in scores like they weren't really used very often before Halloween. And he 
kind of made that a thing with the Halloween score. Like the, the main theme doesn't have a lot of synth in it. If I remember correctly, it is mostly piano, but much of the rest of the score uses synths. And they, I mean, that has been replicated over and over again. If you look up John Carpenter, like so many artists have said that like the synth thing directly came from him, which is super interesting to think about because you just associate oh, wow. that with like the 80s sound in general, I think. And it's, mm-hmm. synths are coming back now too. Synths are cool, again, even in popular music, like you hear it in like that one weekend song and a whole bunch of stuff, like synths are in. And it was kind of John Carpenter that made synths in. It's perfect that you're talking about this with the backdrop that you have of like the VHS tapestry behind you. Uh-huh. As I'm watching it, so cool. I have a big old tapestry in my bedroom that is a bunch of VHS tapes. And it's all real movies, which I like. They're not just like made-up scribbles, but it's like written real movies. I actually think one of them says Big Trouble in Little China on it. I'm trying to look right now. I don't know. But I think one of them says that. Love it. So what um, what else can you tell me about like John Carpenter's The Thing as far as the story goes? And maybe any like, what are some of your favorite character deaths maybe? I mean, so all the characters except two die, if I remember correctly. So that's similar to the prequel, the 2011 version, right? It sounds like all of them except two die, and then one of them gets away, and then the other is the main character, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So there is, um, if I remember correctly, I might be making this up, but I remember there's a, a dog that is kind of the instigating. So the dog is the one who gets the alien first in this version, is there a dog in the prequel? Yeah, there is. Okay. I was going to say, do they do a similar thing? Because the dog <laughs> is the, is kind of the first one to go and the one that they kind of figure it out from, um, which is a fun plot device. I think that's cool rather than immediately going to a human character. And I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's funny that they did it in the, in the prequel too. It's ironic. There's a line in one of my favorite movies, Seven Psychopaths, where Sam Rockwell playing Billy, he has a line where he's like, because you can't kill the animals in a movie, just the women, which is like, you know, a very valid criticism of film. But it's interesting because in both of the movies that we're talking about right now, it's like the opposite. Like the animal dies first. And like, at least in the 2011, like one of the women survives. Yay for women. There are, there are <laughs> literally no women in this version, in the John Carpenter version, if I remember correctly, which I mean... It does kind of make sense. It it really wouldn't be realistic for like a woman in the eighties to be at this camp in Antarctica. Like it would it, it really honestly wouldn't make sense. It's it's set in the specific time period that it takes place in. I think it I think it takes place in the early eighties. Um and it's in Antarctica and it's a bunch of bro dudes. But I actually think the dynamic of it being all men makes more sense like with that tension that I mentioned earlier. It's like a very male thing, the way that they interact with each other and the way that they work through this problem. It's a very male way to handle it. And I think that actually makes it more interesting. Not that I don't want to see women in movies, but I think it serves a certain purpose within that version for it to be all men. Yeah. I mean, not having seen it, I would agree with, you know, what you're saying, especially for the movie coming out in the 80s for like the cultural vibe to, I guess, like accept that concept more. But now it's interesting, like the 2011 one, um, there's two female characters. And I think that that actually helps fuel the initial distrust because especially like there's a moment where they're on the helicopter, like on their way to the base early on. And someone mentions to our main paleontologist lady, someone mentions like, yeah, you don't want to be stuck alone with like 12 norwegian drunk dudes or something which you know gives you enough of a hint of being like yeah you know there's you don't you don't really want to be amongst a 
group of a bunch of men when you're like the only woman. But yeah, so I think in like this context, in the time when it came out, 2011, that adds a similar type of tension because you do kind of have that like, you know, you, you should be a little bit distrustful, a little bit like on edge around like too many dudes if you're like the only woman. Which is valid. And I agree with you. I think that makes sense. Again, it's all context, right? I, I think yeah. For the context of that version, it makes more sense. And interesting tidbit, if I'm remembering correctly, there is a woman in the 1950s version as well. One is of there? the women in that situation is, there's a woman on the, on the base. I think it's the setting of that film is a little bit different. I, I do think it's still like Antarctica. I want to say it's like someone's wife or something, and that's why she's there. And I do think they treat her like a total typical woman in the movie. It's mm-hmm. the 50s. Like it, I, I, I remember one scene. It's like, <laughs> I think they're trying to lure the monster. So the monster in it is hilarious. It's a 50s movie. And it's like, so it's played by, have you heard of the show Gunsmoke? Yeah, yeah. The main character in Gunsmoke is the monster in this movie. Oh, I'm forgetting dang. his name. Nice. But he's like a really big, tall guy, like suitable for a 1950s monster. But he wears like a tin, it almost looks like a can of soup on his head because he's an <laughs> alien. It's not, it, it's, it's like a big physical alien. I, I don't think it inhabits bodies in the same way. I'm, I'm, again, I don't remember the 50s version very well. I could be wrong. But I don't mm-hmm. think it inhabits bodies. I think it's like a physical being the entire time. But anyway, I think there's a point where they tell the woman to like hold a mattress in her hand to protect her as they open this door for the monster to come in. It's like so <laughs> 1950s and hilarious. But the monster, if I remember correctly, is like very funny looking. It almost looks like a shitty version of the Tin Man from Wizard of Oz. Is that, so is that the one that, because when I like Googled the thing way back when, um, mm-hmm. when my friend Jen was making, you know, the cool like jack-o'-lantern pumpkins that we have on our Instagram to like mm-hmm. represent each episode in October. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, you know, we need something for the thing and I haven't seen it before. I don't know anything about it. So I Googled the thing and like the only thing that really came up that was like an iconic picturesque piece of it was like a human with like these kind of spike shapes coming out, like a starburst coming out of space. Honestly, I've never understood that. So that's on the poster art for the John Carpenter version as well. So the poster, okay. like the main poster the theatrical poster for the thing. I collect movie posters, so I know a lot about movie posters. Is that image. And it almost looks like a guy in like a scuba out, like an old school scuba outfit with like these rays of light coming out of his face, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really resemble what the 50s monster looks like either. The 50s <laughs> monster just looks bad. And you never see that iconography in the 80s version. Like that's not a thing. Nobody's Weird. wearing like a... That's not, that's not a thing. So I don't know where that comes from. I do think... Two, if I remember correctly, the font used in the 80s theatrical poster is replicated from the 50s version. I could be making that up, but I think Ooh. it's supposed to be like a fun callback to that version as well. Oh my God. Not to like bring Avatar back into this, but to bring Avatar back into this. You remember when everyone was like, or they had that whole SNL joke about like the Avatar is papyrus, like the font is papyrus. And now I can't not look at that and be like, Wow. You just really went on Microsoft Word and highlighted, went down to Papyrus and was like, and that's it. not just that, but Papyrus is the stupidest font. It is not cute. It is not cool. There are literally hundreds of thousands of font styles in the world, and they chose Papyrus. And Papyrus. if you could choose a different font for the Avatar movie, 
logo. What would you choose and why? Serious question. I mean, why can't we even just stick with like something straightforward? Like Times New Roman is better than papyrus and that's not saying much. But when it comes to like nice fonts, I mean, I like a nice like I like a sans serif font mm. um, yep, yep. with a nice clean modern sans serif and just not papyrus. And I think it almost lends itself to like a weird level of racism in choosing papyrus when reflecting the language that they speak on that on the or on the planet. I don't remember the name of the planet. Yeah. I don't care. That's but a good like, point. Why, why do they have a weird tribalistic font that calls harkens back to ancient Egypt? With it's weird. I hate it. I hate so much about it. <laughs> it's a hideous typeface. I'm sorry to the person who designed it, but it's heinous. It's like windings. Wing. Yeah, wingdings. Ah, classic. I hate it. On another like font note. Sorry, before we go back to it, but you know how like when you go on Microsoft Word nowadays, like the updated versions, it will default your font to Calibri. Like, I don't know if it does. Okay, so it does that for everybody else, too. Yeah. Why? Who the fuck decided? Like, who was like, you know what we use the most? Calibri. Or like, who yeah. who created the Calibri font and invested too much money into being like, you're going to make my font the default? Yeah, I don't love that font. I'm more of an Arial girl myself. Like, if I'm choosing like a basic font, I want Arial. That's my choice. But mm-hmm. yeah, and like Outlook also defaults to Calibri, Calibri. I don't know how to say it. Oh, it yeah. defaults to that too via email. I don't want that in my email. I want so a different weird. font. And I don't get it. I don't yeah. know. I'm Especially because you. anytime you're like writing an essay or doing something like formal, um, they always ask for Times New Roman. And like, it's such a hassle to go and change it to Times New Roman. Yeah. Like, just have it be Times New Roman. Right. Our struggles are pale our our struggles pale in comparison to you know potentially being eaten by an alien thing (laughs) being consumed your physical presence being consumed by an alien being (laughs) yeah can you imagine you're like getting you know you have like the face sucker on you like just taking your identity i really do need you to watch the alien movies though because that would be a great follow-up for us to do to this movie because the thing is extraordinarily similar to alien yeah like in many ways it almost seems like the thing is kind of a ripoff of alien not having seen it i even think that because like just what i know from like pop culture like so yeah the face sucker um there's like a face sucker in the 2011 there's like a little it's like a hand like someone's hand falls off and it's a creature thing hand yep 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 and it it locks onto someone's face and like does a sucky thing and that was for me, that was like the most terrifying moment in this. I like literally recoiled and couldn't look for a second. I was like, ugh. But yeah, and then there's also, as I was looking up a fun fact or like a trivia fact, there was something that mentioned, and I noticed this in the film too. There's like early on when they're looking at the ice stuff, part of the ice in one of the frames looks a lot like a xenomorph because apparently some of the effects people worked on the thing that also worked on Alien. So it could have very well been them intentionally being like, Yo, guys, we also worked on Alien. Interesting. As, yeah, and as someone who's, like, very much loves this movie and thinks it's, like, a top horror film, it's kind of really similar to Alien. Like, I'm not trying to be a hater, but, like, it's the same thing. Honestly, so. they should own it. Next time there's a movie for either one of them, it should just be, uh, like, The Thing versus Alien. Like, you know how they did with, like, Freddy Yo, versus Jason? Or... I'm into that, though. 
Yeah. Like that might be your big break into Hollywood, Kim. You need to write that script. Like I'm so here yes. for that. I would like, direct the, Prometheus, the fuck out of that. I'm not into the Prometheus movies. Like let's X-nay that and let's go full in. I want a crossover film. I want it to be cheesy, mid-level budget with like a B-level star and a lot of gore. And that's what I'm here for. Completely agree. I think we need more like crazy mashup stuff going on. Um, but okay, so like the thing, I just realized that the prequel doesn't really give you any any historical information on the alien, which personally I like. I think it works better when you're just there along for the ride and you don't really get like, this guy came from a planet similar to Venus or whatever. But anything, is there anything in your knowledge that you know that gives away some of like the the history, the background on the actual creature? Not that I remember, because it's kind of the same start to the film that you get in the new one where they come upon the spacecraft crash is how they okay. discover the alien. Um, so, yeah, I don't really think you got a lot of context. I want to say, I can't remember. I do think that they give you some information around, like, when the crash happened or, like, where the ship came from or they thought it was, like, a Soviet thing. I could be making that up too, but I think that they like think that it's that and then it's not, but yeah, you don't really get a lot of information around the origin of it or like how long it's been on earth or things like that. It's, it's, and I agree with you. I think that's part of what I like about it is it, it doesn't really matter. And if anything, that makes it more scary because mm-hmm. it's just like this omnipresent alien creature that you don't know, you don't understand it. And I think that makes yeah. it a little creepier. Because sometimes backstory can kind of ruin it for you a little bit um i was discussing this with joey actually the other day and a lot of us kind of have the consensus for like the movie us that came out last year uh really good movie loved it the only like downside in my opinion and most people kind of are on the same wavelength uh when they give away too much like exposition at the end you know when they really dig into they're like ah so this is the missing information here's the the background here's like the full, you know, story. I don't want to say too much because anybody listening to this might not have seen us. You should. It's really good. But yeah, I think that's just like the weakest point is when they try and get too much into the history in the background because, you know, you're mostly there for the scary. You need enough to like keep you um, a little bit knowledgeable slash questionable. But I think once you give too much, you also invite yourself up for like a whole bunch of plot holes that then you leave the audience with all these questions of being like, well, but how was that possible? How was this possible? That is yeah. a thousand percent how I thought about Us. I loved Us, um, but I agree that that was its biggest weakness. And again, I'm not gonna, I am not going don't want to spoil anything either because I think people should watch it if they haven't seen it. But yeah, because I, I think the reason that choice was made was to send a broader message beyond the scary of the film. Because there's a, there's a message behind the movie. There's a message to it. But I think that message could have been done without giving you all those answers. And I, I agree. So many plot holes when they try to explain all of that at the end. I'm like, yeah. that literally does not make any sense. There are so many questions. Like, what? You're going to tell me? Never mind. I'm gonna, I was going to say a spoiler. No, it doesn't <laughs> make sense. There's so many plot holes that are opened up at the end. And up until it gives you that information, I was like all in. I didn't need anything else. I was like, this is so yeah. interesting. Yeah, so I agree. Sometimes less is more. Mm. And like, so, you know, how we're mentioning how the thing, especially the prequel, the one that I saw, doesn't dig too much into that. I think it definitely benefits the entire, like all the story, like all the adaptations. 
it's beneficial that they don't get too much into it because like they're all really good in their own right without having to be like well let's explain you know the origins of this guy without getting like a like i hope we don't end up with a a spin-off movie where they try and explain the yeah. origins yeah and i think oftentimes particularly with sci-fi less can be more because you're frequently exploring topics that are things that either we currently do not have an understanding of are just beginning to have an understanding of or do not have proof in its existence one way or another right so sci-fi movies you know are often about future technologies or foreign creatures of some kind aliens ufos things that you know maybe are or are not real or true or things that we have access to as humans so if you try to over explain it it often just doesn't make sense to people or you just dig yourself in a plot hole cavern where you can't get out of it because why are you trying to explain things where we don't even understand it outside of the universe of the movie you know Mm -hmm. and okay so um when i was looking up whether or not they're trying to make a new adaptation of this film the answer unfortunately is yes as with pretty much anything they're ready to make another one um blumhouse announced in january of this year that an expanded remake is in the works so it's currently under the title Frozen Hell, which turns out is the name of the book that actually is said to have inspired the original book, like the original, like Who Goes There, which was the influence for everything. Apparently, the influence for that book was Frozen Hell, which would now be the title of what will soon be the newest The Thing. Which okay. is weird. I mean, like going listen. Back. Blumhouse gives me a little hope. Blumhouse is not all good. They have some flops. They have some failures. I'm not going to be like lit. It's not like A24 where like the vast majority of stuff they do is like really good. It could be bad. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it gives me some hope. And one magical thing about Blumhouse movies is they put no money behind any of them. So their budgets are so small that they have to get really creative to do whatever they're doing. And it usually works out for the better. So that gives me some hope. Mm -hmm. What that made me think of, more John Carpenter facts... Um, John Carpenter is notorious for having a laundry list of projects that he was attached to that he never ended up being attached to. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's, it has its own Wikipedia page I saw earlier. Oh God. Um, let me go try to go to this because it's really interesting. It was like so many, so many projects that his name was attached to at some point that he was supposed to be doing and then they got dropped or taken over by somebody else or... Like, so many things. So here we go. Unrealized projects of John Carpenter. A whole Wikipedia page. Let's just go through some of these. Top Gun. He was originally supposed to direct Top Gun. I love Top Gun. It's ridiculous and I love it. Same. I watched it very recently. It's so homoerotic in the best way. Tombstone would have been another Kurt Russell collaboration. Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer, Western. Total dad movie. Like, total, total dad movie. So, and his greatest dream... Is to, was to direct a Godzilla adaptation and to have not only Godzilla adaptation, but the first American Godzilla movie, which, of course, is not possible anymore. There's been a bunch of American Godzillas now, the shitty Matthew Broderick 90s one, um, and then the more recent ones, which I actually kind of like the more recent ones. They're not amazing, but they're fun. Um, mm. I'm a pretty big Godzilla fan myself. But anyway, that's always been his live stream. He's a huge, huge, huge Godzilla fan. He's been obviously attached, unattached to multiple Halloween movies, Halloween H2O, Halloween 4. Um, he just never ended up actually directing them. Um, direct, er, attached to a Thing video game. 
a Ooh. thing. Miniseries sequel, those did not happen. One that I think is interesting, Zombieland, when it was supposed to apparently be a TV pilot. Damn. Oh, that would have been cool. Totally. <laughs> um, Haunting in Connecticut, that random 2000s horror movie that a lot of people have seen. A remake of They Live, Dead Space, the movie. Um, oh, this one is probably my favorite because it's really random. He's a massive fan of Sonic the Hedgehog and wanted oh to direct God. the movie that came out this year. Yes. That's actually an episode I have planned is to talk about Sonic because, you know, a film adapted from good old video games. Have you seen the film? I have not. You should definitely see it. Is it actually good? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I really liked it. I think it was... uh, How do I put this? I think they did really good at keeping it in a vague enough age demographic, if that makes sense. So it's still family friendly. But like there's enough that like I watched it, you know, I'm in my early to mid 20s and I watched it and I was like having a good time without it being like too kiddish or without it being like they tried to make it too adultish. And also just supported by the fact that the VFX company had to redo all of Sonic and the VFX company like went bankrupt or they went bankrupt or like shut down after having to do that, which is crazy. What a disaster. Yeah. Oh my God. We could talk about how unfairly treated VFX companies are treated all the time. I mean, I yeah. mean, they're the only, I believe they're the only sect of filmmaking that isn't unionized, if I remember correctly. They don't have a union, so they're treated like garbage. They work absurd hours. They're underpaid. I had no idea that they wouldn't, weren't unionized. Yeah, I think that's, I don't know if that's still true, but the last that I had heard about it, they do not have a union. Damn. They do like most of the, like so much of the work for the modern blockbuster yeah i think the average i just saw this the other day because i was reading about tenet and christopher nolan used very little vfx in tenet that's very nolan of him he hates vfx Mm -hmm. but it had like i think tenet had like 280 vfx shots and the average like rom-com like a non-vfx movie has that many vfx shots in it because that's just what people do now You, you cityscape shots and correcting zits on people's faces and Getting rid of mustaches on Superman when he has to come back and do reshoots. And God. The VFX are everywhere now. Anyway, tangent. No, but I think it's uh, I think it's really important for directors to not rely on VFX as much as possible. Like Nolan seems to have that philosophy you said. And I'm like, yes, good, because you should be making a movie. You should not be relying on editing and VFX to make the movie. Unless you're, you know, like Infinity War, Endgame, like, yeah, you're going to need that. But damn, you know, I have a random question that I should know the answer to, but is John Carpenter still alive? Yes, he is. Okay. That's a valid question. Good. I just like, I'm not familiar enough with him and I don't like follow him in any sense. So it's good to hear that. I could be making this up, but I believe he lives like in the middle of nowhere and is just like chilling. Like, he, like, nice. really likes to do his own thing and just, like, hangs out and he doesn't, live doesn't in, like, like to be bothered. Does he live in, like, a, a little secluded cabin in the woods? I think so. I feel like I've read that before. Like, he's just, he's like, leave me alone. I'm going to go play synthesizers in the woods. <laughs> he's going to end up in his own horror movie, and I love it. He'd probably love that, too. <laughs> so, for this possible new adaptation... Uh, this probable new adaptation that Blumhouse is making. If you could like throw any casting ideas out there, is there anyone on your mind that you would want to be in it? 
I feel like I could still vibe with like a Kurt Russell cameo. Like what if Kurt Russell got like killed early in the movie? That'd be fun. He's been in some stuff lately. He was in like Fast and Furious and like Guardians of the Galaxy. So I feel like he'd vibe with like just popping up for a minute. He can get killed like five minutes in. It'd be fun. <laughs> um, who else would I like? Who would I want to be like our hero? Like our main hero? Do you have anyone in your brain? Honestly, and I can't figure out like what role I would want her to be in. But something says Octavia Spencer. And I don't know if she's that's in that also... one. She was in that Blumhouse movie, that one, Mom, what's it called? That's why. Okay, because there was, yeah, that trailer for like the the Blumhouse spooky movie that she was in. And I remember seeing the trailer. I can't remember what it's called. But I saw the trailer and I was like, oh, this looks really good. And then I like never heard about it since. Like, it's, it's probably come out by now. I just haven't seen it. I forget what it's called. But yeah, I know what you're talking about. That's funny that you thought of it with Blumhouse. I was trying to think... Okay, have you watched any of Lovecraft Country on HBO? Oh, not yet. I love the lead in that. And I, I feel like he's kind of up and coming. I forget his name, but he's really good and he's very handsome. Um, he, I can see him doing some leading man stuff. And I feel like he would be a fun like action horror hero. Mm-hmm. So he might be cool. Um, sorry, sir, that I don't remember your name, but I like you in Lovecraft Country. Um, who else? I don't know. Well, like some of the... I think, like, one or two of the Stranger Things kids would be a fun addition. Like, oh, who's the... Oh, my God. Who's the guy? The guy who had the girlfriend and they sang Never Ending Story. Dustin. <laughs> yeah. What's Dustin. his real name? Whatever his uh, real name is. Gatton, Gaten Maserato. Maserato. Maserati. Yes. <laughs> Gaten Maserati. Yeah, there we go. No, what about just David Harbour? Can David Harbour be our hero? Because I love him. Yes. Or... He'd be a fun, like, dad hero. <laughs> Winona Ryder. Let's bring her in. You know what? Just the entire cast of Stranger Things. Let's transplant them to the new The Thing movie. <laughs> it's just Stranger Things season four is just The Thing movie. Like it's no, there's no other plot. They're just in the Antarctic, in Antarctica with I mean, aliens. To be fair, the creature in The Thing sometimes did look kind of like the Demogorgon. And I was going to say poor Will gets his body taken over by the alien again. <laughs> Poor Will. Just keeps getting uh, fucked over, man. Yeah, he doesn't get to have a personality because he's just always having to deal with aliens every season. <laughs> yep. Oh, my God. Well, okay. So if Ennio, Ennio Morricone is unfortunately passed away, who who could do justice to the score of like the new thing? Well, you could bring in the folks from Stranger Things. I forget their names. I own all the scores on vinyl because I'm so obsessed with them. Um, Love it. But those guys are awesome. So you could you could go like more synthy route or um, the dude. Oh, um, the guy who did um, uh, The Mandalorian and he oh, also did yeah. Tenet. I just saw Tenet, so I'm kind of on a Tenet kick. That's why I keep bringing it up. But um, Ludwig, Ludwig something. But no, he, because the tenant score is synthy and actually very cool. Um, and he did a good job with that. So I, maybe he'll, he'll do some more stuff, I would think. I mean, the dude's awesome. So, but he'd be my pick. He probably is a little too big for a Blumhouse movie. Like, I don't think they could afford him, but he'd be who I'd choose. Hell yeah. And while you keep talking about tenant, I have been so excited to see that movie and I haven't seen it yet. But I think this weekend I'm going to go to a drive in and try and finally hit it up are they airing it at drive-ins out in california someone told me they were but i have yet to fact check them so we just went we picked a showtime we picked a showtime where nobody else was there so we were just in the theater alone essentially nice so that was nice oh god i miss movie theaters so much but living in la we still cannot we can't do that yet 
Yeah. Well, and, like, the chances in L.A. of getting an empty movie theater, like, yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, especially if they, like, just reopened kind of thing. Like, there's no way you wouldn't have a huge influx of people. But, yeah, dang. Any? Do you have any other, like, interesting fun facts or, like, just things that you love about the thing that you want to mention? I just love this movie, and I I don't think it gets enough credit for being an excellent horror movie. It's really good, and... It's really fun if you like fun gore, which I do. I like really good gore in horror movies, and the gore in this is great. Lots of, like, exploding bodies and fun, weird um, little hands and creepy creepy things that they did with classic 80s technology. Um, but it's really fun, and it's really good. And if you want a good, creepy... I say watch it in the, in the dead of winter if you live somewhere that has snow, because it's just a great vibe for that. Or watch it now because it's spooky season. But I love this movie. I think Kurt Russell and John Carpenter are one of the greatest Hollywood collaborations of all time. They've done many movies together. That's they a make bold sweet, statement. Music. It's like Scorsese and De Niro, but for camp movies, which is all I really want in life. So nice. I love the collaboration. I think that they make beautiful, sweet music together. Um, so yeah, that's my little pitch for the thing. Well, high praise from a very highly praised person. Thank you again, the the one, the only, Anna Young. Well, thank you. You're so kind. Looking forward to talking to you again for like a million more episodes that we have planned. Yes, I will always be back. And I think the next one that we have coming up is White Christmas. But anyways, thank you again. And yeah, man, we'll see you next time. Yeah, peace. Thanks. And that's a wrap. If you enjoyed this week's episode, we'd appreciate if you'd follow the show on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you're listening from. You can also find exclusive episode release schedules and more on our Instagram, Flip the Script with Kim. Thank you for your time, and we hope you'll tune in for next week's episode. Peace out. <laughs>